Non-group insurance markets provide coverage to just 6% of the U.S. population, but they've been the focus of most complaints about the Affordable Care Act. Although it's not likely to happen under the Trump administration, there have been moves to increase funding and encourage competition in insurer and provider markets that could make these non-group insurance areas more affordable. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Linda Blumberg, a senior fellow at the Urban Institute's Health Policy Center. Dr. Blumberg has co-authored a perspective article about strategies for strengthening the ACA. Dr. Blumberg, you say in your article that the Trump administration has made changes to open enrollment that's going to make it harder for consumers to sign up for marketplace coverage. Has that actually played out that way? Well, we're still in the midst of the current open enrollment period. It ends on December 15th. So I do think that it's going to be causing problems, and I think eventually when the enrollment period is over, we're going to see lower enrollment than what we had seen in prior years. But from the most recent news reports, we've seen that there's been an increase in early enrollment through the marketplaces, which is a positive sign for those markets because the higher the enrollment, the more stability. But because the open enrollment period has basically been cut in half and there's been other barriers put up, in order to be counteracting all of those other barriers, we'd have to see twice as much enrollment basically every day through the open enrollment period in order not to see decreases this year. And I don't think that's happened thus far, and I don't think we'll see it happen before the end of the open enrollment period on the 15th. You also talk in your article about the potential benefits of making the ACA's temporary reinsurance program permanent. So that's something that Republicans have supported. Why is it important and and why is it not happening? Well, the Republicans did have a permanent reinsurance, or at least through the budget window, a 10-year reinsurance program in the repeal and replace proposals that they had put forward over the summer. And the reason it's important is because what it allows is us to take the very high-cost enrollees that might be coming in disproportionately into the private non-group insurance market and share their high costs, their excess costs, if you will, across a much broader tax-paying population. And so what that means is that it alleviates some of the extra costs, the high costs that may be driving high premiums in some areas of the country in the current non-group insurance market. And so it's very important to long-term stability, I think, of these programs to have one of these reinsurance programs in place. And I think as the Republicans were looking at various different options, they recognize the importance of spreading that health care risk as well. It's not happening now, I think, for political reasons, because if you did that on its own, it would create more stability, lower premiums in the non-group market today, and we would see higher enrollment, more participation by insurers. And right now, politically, the Republicans are not interested in that kind of outcome. Well, the truth is that Lamar Alexander was close or at reaching a compromise to do at least a couple of year reinsurance program with Patty Murray and then clearly didn't have sufficient support among the Republicans in the Senate to do that and probably not in the House either. But it's probably not fair to say no Republicans were interested in the reinsurance because Lamar Alexander and the Health Committee had been working on that with the Democrats on that committee. It's just that there wasn't enough support from the rest of the Republicans in the Senate to move it forward. Another tactic that would increase enrollment in marketplace plans would involve revising the tax credit schedule so that enrollees would contribute less of their income and they wouldn't have the same out-of-pocket costs. 
How were those tax credits originally set, and how much would it cost the government to change them? The schedule was originally set, I think, in a context of a desire to keep a new government cost associated with the Affordable Care Act below a trillion dollars over the 10-year budget window. And while a trillion dollars sounds like a lot, and it is a big number, it's a very small percentage of what we spend on health expenditures nationally, and it's a small share of what we the government spends nationally on health care. And so in a lot of ways, uh, John Hollihan and I are, have been trying to express that these premium tax credits and cost-sharing reductions were really underfunded from the beginning, and that in order to have more people feel that this coverage is affordable and that their access is affordable once they have coverage and they don't have deductibles that are too high in order to allow them to get the necessary care, that we should really be investing more in those premium tax credits and cost-sharing reductions than we had before. And how much it's going to cost to increase them is completely a function of how much more generous you make them and how much more you lower the premium cost for enrollees or lower their cost-sharing responsibilities and how high up the income scale you go with that. You also talk in your article about the so-called family glitch in the marketplace. How did that policy come about and how often does it keep people who would be eligible for subsidies from getting that assistance? There's a little bit of uncertainty about how the family glitch actually got into place. There is a sense from some folks that this was really a technical error in the drafting. And if the Congress had been behaving in the way most Congresses do when there's a big social policy change, they do technical corrections after a bill has passed into law. This was not a politically possible situation once the bill had passed, and so those corrections couldn't be made. Other folks believe that actually the way that the law is written that the Treasury Department should have interpreted it differently, such that there was a affordability standard for family policies, not just worker-only policies, and that the Treasury Department was too strict in its interpretation. But essentially, what the family glitch refers to is that under the Affordable Care Act, individuals and their family members are prohibited from getting premium tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies in the marketplaces if even one worker in the family has access to affordable employer-sponsored insurance for their own coverage, for worker-only coverage. And so, for example, you could have a worker who has access to an employer-sponsored insurance policy for themselves in the family that costs them less than 8% of their income, which is the affordability standard. But the coverage for their family members may cost well above 8% of the family's income. And because the affordability standard is tied to worker-only coverage, the entire family is barred from getting financial assistance in the marketplace, even if the family coverage could be very costly relative to their income. And we think that an estimated 3.6 million people could be being hit in terms of this financial extra financial burden on them due to the family glitch. You argue that the sale of short-term policies and other non-ACA compliant health plans should be prohibited, but a recent executive order seems to go in the opposite direction. What effect do you expect that order to have on the market? We're going to have to see how that order is actually implemented because we haven't seen the regulations that are going to be forthcoming on that. But it could really be devastating. In essence, what they could do is allow 
policies that are sold for 364 days instead of the 365 in a year to be sold through this short-term limited duration market. Those policies in that market are not covered by the regulations of the Affordable Care Act non-group insurance market. And so they are not guaranteed issue. They can be denied to people based on their health status. They are not subject to the modified community rating rules of the ACA. So if they are issued to somebody, people can be sold policies that vary in price extremely based on the expected health care costs of the enrollee. So sick people could be charged very, very high premiums or not be allowed to buy them at all. The, the policies are not bound by the essential health benefit requirements of the ACA. So they can be very limited benefits. But if you're selling products for basically a year, but one day short of a year, that are allowed to discriminate against people with health problems, and those are being sold in parallel to policies under the ACA that are pooling the health care risk of the healthy and the sick, what these policies can do is pull many of the healthy people out of the Affordable Care Act markets because they can get the advantage of these cheaper, leaner policies when they're very healthy, and that will drive up costs for those people who are left in the Affordable Care Act markets, and it may likely also pull insurers out of those markets because as they get smaller and are left with higher cost on average enrollees, that market becomes less attractive to the insurers and increasingly inaccessible to people who need that coverage. Looking at something else that's currently in the news, what do you think would be the consequences of a tax reform bill that essentially eliminated the individual mandate? We say in our paper, in our perspective, that enforcing full enforcement of the individual mandate is a really important component to stability in these markets as well. And that's because the individual mandate encourages some healthy people who might not otherwise buy insurance coverage because they feel like they don't need it. It encourages them to enroll and be part of the insurance pool that shares the costs of the sick across the healthy population and the sick population. And so when you eliminate the individual mandate, there's a direct effect and there's an indirect effect. The direct effect is first a bunch of people who are only buying because they're trying to avoid the penalty decide they're not going to buy health insurance coverage anymore. Those people are disproportionately healthy. As they leave the market, the average cost of the people who are left in the insurance market becomes sicker. They become more costly. And so as a result, premiums have to increase in that market to accommodate for the fact that the insurance pool has just gotten on average sicker. And as those premiums go up, some people can't afford them anymore. And so they lose coverage because of the loss of the healthier people. And you start pulling more people out who are disproportionately healthy and the premiums increase. So you've got this dual effect of some people dropping coverage because they simply don't want to have it under these conditions without the penalty. And then as a consequence, premiums escalating for others and they lose their coverage as a consequence of that. We expect there to be a significant increase in the number of people uninsured as a consequence. So finally, given all of this, what do you think it would take for lawmakers to seriously consider bipartisan changes to the ACA that follow some of your proposals? I think that the current Congress is really not interested in one part of the Congress is not really interested in significant changes to improve the Affordable Care Act. I think there'd have to be political change in Congress in order for that to occur. There are a number of people who have proposals out to make changes, some of which relate to the things we have in our proposal, 
and some of which are different, but there are a number of people that are trying to think about how to improve and strengthen the marketplaces and the insurance coverage in order to meet the original objectives of the Affordable Care Act, which was to decrease the uninsured, lower the growth in healthcare spending, and make coverage more broadly accessible and affordable to people regardless of their health status. So I think to be practical about it, these kinds of things are not going to be implemented until there is a change in perspective in the Congress by the majority. Thank you, Dr. Blumberg.